0: Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: People have to be forward in their requests because people who sit on the boards are not going to change unless they're made to. Some of them may, most of them won't because they are the standard bearers for the status quo. So they don't all want to change.
0: That's Lola C. West, co-founder and partner of West Fuller Advisors, a boutique investment advisory firm in New York City that builds legacies of wealth for individuals, families, and institutions. Lola has a long and distinguished career in finance, serving previously as senior partner at Merrill Lynch for almost a decade of LWF Wealth Management Group. She previously owned Dean Sales Enterprises, named in honor of another pioneering woman, Dean Sales, who was the first black professional fundraiser registered with the Attorney General's Charities Bureau of New York. Lola's business was a fundraising and event planning firm that staged major events for highly visible clients, ranging from President Nelson Mandela to Jesse Norman and August Wilson. She's on the boards of the New York Women's Foundation, Donors of Color Network, True North Media, LLC, The New Three R's, and the Souls Grown Deep Community Partnership and Foundation. Lola received a BA in psychology from Brooklyn College and a master's degree in urban planning from Hunter College. Hi, Lola. Hi, how are you? Oh, just languishing in a pandemic. Speaking of which, let me ask you, as a fellow New Yorker, when do you think the city will return to something we both recognize?
1: Actually, no idea, Max. <laughs> I'm not sure if the vaccine will be taken when they say it's ready because I really believe that there has been so much deceit and lying that New York is more than others are going to be very skeptical about whether or not they're going to take it. I've lived in New York all my life. I have never seen the city like this. It is astounding. And I'm not sure when it's going to get back to the norm. I understand from some stats that New York is 73% back. But I don't even feel that percentage.
0: Yeah, with the office buildings closed and the ancillary businesses surrounding them closed, it's not a quick fix.
1: We run office spaces on Avenue of the Americas between 46th and 47th. During this pandemic, I've been to the office on two Saturdays and then two times during the week. In that office building, there is no one there. All of the restaurants in the surrounding area are shut down. It's going to take a minute.
0: Before entering the world of finance, you had multiple careers, including while earning your master's degree, working in the City Planning Commission, followed by serving as the director of a head start center, then owning an antique store, then serving as a building administrator for United Cerebral Palsy Association and then years of experience after launching an event management firm with convening people, which must have led you to reflect on how health concerns are going to affect big gatherings in our near future. Do you have any predictions?
1: As in when New York is going to get back, I feel the same way about the continuation of mega events. Having been on the board of directors or on the board of directors through the New York Women's Foundation, We do a breakfast each May, which brings 2,200 women to breakfast at seven in the morning. We don't see that happening for a moment yet. There are so many options that one has to take into consideration and with no cooperation from the federal government in instituting the types of testing that needs to be done and the procedures that need to be put in place to accommodate large crowds, I don't think that anything on a very large scale will happen again until there is a new administration. Because this administration does not understand what it is to be a country with 330 million people and all the things that have to be taken into consideration. It's the most inept government I've ever witnessed.
0: Do you suppose, as is the case in much of Asia, that Americans will just have to get used to wearing masks in public?
1: Yeah, I do think so for, for many people, because especially for those who've lost people, it's devastating to think that. We could have gotten a handle on this if people would just wear masks. The fact that the present administration sought to make this a political issue is really just so damaging to Americans. You put on a seatbelt in a plane. You don't argue with a person about your right. You put on a seatbelt in a car. So this whole thing about not putting on a mask is just stupid because of it i don't know when we're really going to get back
0: it all makes me think of a experience i had in naples decades ago when the national seatbelt law passed in italy and the next morning you could see street vendors with a white t-shirt and a black stripe running diagonally from shoulder to waist for sale
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it, are you trying to say it's global
0: I think there is a stripe of irrationality that runs around the globe, yes. But let's move from the event life that you had to your world of finance. You got registered and licensed on entering the field of investment advising in the late 1990s with a decade at Merrill Lynch. And you've said that the stock market is the only race-blind investment entity that we have and that people of color have been slow to enter it. So how have you gone about changing that?
1: What I've been committed to is literacy, financial literacy with people, and just talking about the market and what it means. As a people, Blacks have been taught to be fearful of the market, not to get into it. You'll just lose all your money. So part of it is just undoing decades and decades of misinformation. I've served as principal for a day. I've done literacy activities for the New Jersey. What team was that? Nets. And -hmm. then they came to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So I work with Jason Collins. We just did all sorts of things that would bring literacy and a very simple conversation about what finance was, what financial literacy was, what compounding interest was, in a very simple and direct way. I still do that, Max, in just general conversations with people because it's something that's not talked about in our community, but it is getting better. The percentage of people who now participate In the market is larger than it's been before. Although the wealth gap is the same as it was in 1968.
0: Well, that is a sobering statistic, Lola. I'm curious, in the face of a roiling pandemic and a surging stock market, what are some of the questions that your clients are putting to you these days?
1: My partner and I have really had a rare opportunity of working with a very progressive group of clients. So their issues and concerns are more about how do we invest to ensure that other communities participate in the wealth building. Our clients are progressive. I would say 95% of them. They're not fearful of the market. I communicate with the clients and have a relationship with them where I know a lot about what's going on in their lives. So, our conversations over this course of time is really checking in to see how they're doing, how this is affecting them. But early on in the process, we dealt with their asset allocation and whether they would be comfortable or not comfortable or how they would want to switch their portfolio. Given that the worst day was March 23rd, where the market took a nosedive, up to that point, we had already started the conversations about what people wanted to do. So that got sort of put to bed max by April. All of our clients' portfolios were adjusted to deal with what's going on. And we are now beginning to go back to clients to talk about what changes we might make at this point.
0: It is very hard for those of us on the progressive end of the spectrum to wrap our minds around how the stock market is surging while much of American society is grappling with the implications of police violence and the power of the Black Lives Matter movement. Can you Help me understand how to reconcile those forces.
1: Interesting. <laughs> you should ask that question because in very many instances, there is a total disconnect because the stock market actually feeds the racial inequality. All right. Fed data shows that 61% of white families own stock while only 31% of blacks have And only 28% of Hispanics are in the market. So right there, you see the disparity. So people who are in the market are taking advantage of the gains in the technology section. If you're not even in the market, none of this really applies to you. So the market has just been on a tear. But it seems that they're now beginning to pull back somewhat because this... Irrational exuberance, as they talked about in the 90s, is yet here again. But when you're now looking at the fact that we may soon be seeing, because of what's happening in the economy, people who are in the 200000 $300,000 income bracket, Max, those people don't have three and four months of savings either. So I have a real concern about how this is going to pan out with the market totally ignoring what's going on. Also, the fact that the government has not decided to put any more money in the hands of the poor. Poor people are the only people who spend every dime they have because they have no choice. So if you don't give them any money, how are they to feed the economy?
0: As a member of the investment committee at Souls Grown Deep, you've advised us as we make our way into impact investing, together with Upstart CoLab, out of an ideological commitment to it, first, and an emerging satisfaction in the performance of our investments, second. Now, while you might not advise your clients to put social activism ahead of investment performance, how many of your clients these days are questioning investment allocations that don't take environmental, social, and governance concerns to mind.
1: I would say most of them are, because we really do have a progressive clientele. They come to us with stuff that they need. I mean, I had one client, her portfolio was somewhat conservative. And one of the things that we do with clients is we also teach them because we'll post things or send things to them to read about what's going on. So one client, like last year, or I'd say last June or before that, she said, I want a hundred shares of Tesla. And we really weren't like all that gun ho about it, knowing that it's something that, you know, we would put in some other portfolios, but given her portfolio, the size of it and her conservative nature, We were like, okay, we'll do it because she really wanted to do it. Well, look at what happened to Tesla. Part of it is that once in a while, a client will come up with something. One of the questions we ask clients, Max, at the very beginning is, Mm -hmm. what are some of the best financial decisions you've made? And what are some of the areas that you do not want to invest in? We get that cleared up in our opening conversation. So we know from the very beginning whether or not people are interested in armaments, liquor, fossil fuels, things like that. So it's not something that then comes up later. It's something that we start off with. So we don't have those issues farther down in the relationship.
0: Yeah, I wish the investment committees in the art museums I used to direct had that type of conversation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You think it might make a difference?
0: Well, I think they're starting to. Souls Deep was the first institutional investor in the Upstart CoLab's new community of investors who are seeking to purge toxic investments from their portfolios. And I'm happy to say that several museums are now engaged in that dialogue with us. And I think there are great possibilities ahead.
1: Which I'm so proud of that we're doing it. And thank you for bringing that to us to even consider.
0: Oh, I'm so grateful to you, Lola, and to the board for supporting that endeavor. And for me, the wake up call was a conversation with a major donor in a public forum in which someone said to them, Well, it's great you give away 5%. What are you doing with the other 95% of your assets?
1: That That is the question, isn't it? (laughs) Because part of it is, What do you give? And do you give until it hurts? Because I ask that question, especially now, given the fact that we have people who have waited in America in a line 10 miles long to get food. Those are not the poor people because really poor people, Max, don't have a car.
0: Yes, and Souls Grown Deep is striving to put money in the hands of communities in the Black Belt that have been frozen out of economic opportunity. But whatever we can do is only providing a drop in the bucket. I'd be curious to know about your thoughts on more sustainable strategies for alleviating poverty in the Deep South.
1: The issue for me with poverty in the Deep South leads me to a conversation around reparations, Max. And I don't know whether or not that's something that you were thinking of, Mm -hmm. but the level of poverty in the South is such that it's going to take an infusion from the government, from banks, from insurance companies to make a difference. This trying to cull together two cents is not gonna make a dent there when there are places in Alabama that resemble some of the worst third world, fourth world, fifth world countries that exist. That's how bad it is. No sewage system. So part of it is the way in which insurance companies and banks, especially insurance companies, chose to insure slaves and to... Ensure slaves over even insuring property shows you the value of slaves and that they were treated as property rather than as humans. And something's got to give for that in order to be some sort of demonstrated delivery of services to the poor communities. And it's not just black people in the South. The poverty in the South is across lines, and it needs to be addressed. And I don't know, as a nation, how we're going to ever get this resolved unless we own what we did and make the commitment to change.
0: Lola, you are not shy in sharing your political views. I'm curious how common that is among wealth advisors. I think of your peers as a very cautious crowd.
1: I think it's my age and my upbringing. I've never been shy to speak my opinion because as a child, my mother would say, well, what do you think about that? And I would say, well, I don't know. And she would say, well, that's not very helpful because it's your mind, not mine. I can't get in it. So you need to tell me what you think. That's how I've just always been. I don't suffer fools lightly, Max. In my practice, in the business that we have, We have been fortunate to have 99% of our clients as same-minded in terms of politics. It would be very hard for me to really interact with someone who didn't have a sense of purpose and commonality around supporting and helping. I grew up with the adage, to whom much is given, much is required. It isn't even expected. So I don't do well with people who don't get that.
0: And that's part of why you started your firm to begin with.
1: Ah, absolutely. Having worked at Merrill Lynch, they wanted me to do something in 2008 that I wouldn't do. And that is, I ran what's called an annuitized book. So I sat down with my clients. We figured out what their goals were. We designed asset allocation in order to assure that they would reach their goal. Merrill wanted me to take about 15% of my book of business and change that to transactional items that would bode well for revenue development for Merrill. So they called me in, and I knew they're gonna call me in six months later because they're gonna watch my book to see what I do, and I didn't do it the first six months. They called me back the second time, And I'd already started planning to leave because I knew they were not going to keep me if I didn't do it. So I left because you own your integrity. No one else does. So I wasn't going to do what they wanted to do, and I knew it wasn't right for the client.
0: America's unusual in delegating to the nonprofit sector the care of societal problems that in most other countries is considered a matter of state, what's your diagnosis of what needs to happen with boards in this country?
1: Boards need to charge their institutions with doing what is appropriate, especially in these times, because at one point, Max, this is not going to continue. So you can give some to change the trajectory of this country. Should you choose not to, then you are responsible for the outcome. It doesn't look good if people continue to hoard and to feel that it's all theirs. Even the, the institutions themselves, they have employees. The employees could even say, look, These are the changes we're doing. Are you with us or are you against us? People have to be forward in their requests because people who sit on the boards are not going to change unless they're made to. Some of them may, most of them won't because they are the standard bearers for the status quo. So they don't all want to change. And it's going to be a matter of time right here. The time that we're in, what things are going to change. And I think your leadership in the museum world is very important because as an organization, we've gotten press on what we're doing, which says that that is something that people are ready and willing to look at. How deep will it go is the question, Max.
0: So you forecast for a living And I'll put you on the spot and just say, imagine it's five days after the election, and finally Joe Biden is certified as our next president. What's supposed to happen next?
1: To start with, his winning the election would give a collective sigh to America and to the rest of the world. So we would start there. And then I think the thing that would calm the country is to enact everything that needs to be done to take control of the pandemic and to do the things that are meaningful for America. And then we have to look at how do you help people with uninsurance? You've got to put more money in that. How do you find out from the governors what are the major issues that they're suffering with, as it is de Blasio in New York City alone has to lay off 22,000 workers. Those are the things that have to get fixed because you can't, on a 50 million people unemployed, start now adding cities, letting go of municipal workers because the city's budgets are shot. So those are the things that have to get done first, Max, or we're just going to further devolve into a cesspool here.
0: Turning to a last, less gloomy topic, you're an art collector, and I'm hoping you'll tell us how you would describe the balance in your collecting between advocacy of artists and a quest for personal enjoyment. Ah, Max, that's really a good question.
1: When I started buying art, my very first piece of art was a Norman Lewis, and it's really interesting that that should happen. And it was because I went to a show up at the Harlem State Office Building for Faith Ringel. I left on an elevator with her with another woman named Peg Austin. We get downstairs and we're standing outside. And I just said to Faith, I said, you know, I love your quilts, but I can't afford it. Her quilts were like five or six figures then. So the woman that was standing with her, Peg Austin, said to me, oh, you know, you can buy art on time. I come from a West Indian family. That was never a concept in our house. If you didn't have the money, you didn't buy it. It intrigued me. So she said, give me your address and I'll send you an invitation because there was no computer then or cell phone. So she sent me an invitation to an art show and I went and I didn't see anything I liked. So I said to her, well, let me know if you get anything else and I'll come back. And she's the person that said to me, she said, it's the best information ever. She said, you know, when you buy art, only buy what you love because you have to look at it all the time. And if you don't like it, it's a problem. And I laughed and I said, you're right. So when I came back, I was flipping through the canvases and I saw this and I said, oh, I want that. And she said, that's really a good piece. And that was my first piece. And then after that, Max, I only bought art that I loved and then i started paying attention to the artist just intuitively i was always buying black artists i like didn't even know it but i just was because what i was attracted to and then i literally just started looking for it and then as time went on you know more and more friends were buying art so it was a matter of who's collecting who And that's really how it started. But my very first piece was just something that I fell in love with. And with all the artists that I've bought, that's still the bottom line for me. Do I love it? Not whether or not it's an investment.
0: Lola, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and talking a bit about your past and present and our future. And I'm very grateful to you.
1: Oh, I thank you so much for asking me. I feel honored
0: We've been speaking today with Lola C. West, co-founder and partner of West Fuller Advisors. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.